Welcome to the Pen Science Policy and Diplomacy Podcast. Here we endeavor to explore the work of, and lives of scientists, the history of knowledge, and what is left to discover. Today, my guest is Dr. Sébastien Tremblay. Hello, Dr. Tremblay. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. So you are a neuroscientist at University of Pennsylvania, affiliated to the laboratory of Dr. Michael Platt, who is one of the founders of the field of neuroethology. Neuroethology is the evolutionary and comparative approach to the study of animal behavior and its underlying neurobiology. So more specifically, your current work falls in basic neuroscience, that is the understanding of the fundamental mechanics of the brain, as opposed to clinical neuroscience, which endeavors to discover a treatment to a particular brain disease. You are a neurophysiologist, meaning you study how the electrical signals of neurons in the brain underlie complex behaviors such as vision, memory, or attention. In your thesis, you have uncovered how the electrical activity of groups of neurons in our brains allow us to selectively attend to certain objects around us. So let's say if we were at a party, selective attention would be our ability to selectively listen to who we're talking to while ignoring music around us or people talking around us. So now you have decided to switch your research focus towards understanding the neuroscience behind social behaviors, perhaps discovering what brain dysfunction underlies mental disorders affecting our social abilities, such as our ability to understand other people's intentions. Interestingly, in parallel of your work in fundamental neuroscience, you have largely contributed to our understanding of what happens in our brain when we suffer from concussions which is basically when we hit our head really hard to the point where, in some cases, we can lose consciousness. Your career as a young neuroscientist is remarkable by your ability to be a fighter on two fronts, both in fundamental neuroscience and in clinical or applied neuroscience. But we'll come back to this more extensively later in the interview. Uh, but right now, I'd like to start by making you listen to a little audio I've selected. So there, there's this enormous mystery uh, waiting to be unlocked. And the Brain Initiative will change that by giving scientists the tools they need to get a dynamic picture of the brain in action and better understand how we think and how we learn and how we remember. In the budget, I will send to Congress next week. I will propose a significant investment by the National Institutes of Health, DARPA, and the National Science Foundation to help get this project off the ground. Imagine if no family had to feel helpless watching a loved one disappear behind the mask of Parkinson's or struggle in the grip of epilepsy. You may have recognized from this video President or past President Obama speaking in 2013. Um, the Obama administration has launched a nationwide initiative to massively fund research in neuroscience by investing $5 billion over 10 years into the field. So here, I would like to start by asking you a simple but important question, which is why? Why is it important to study the brain and why should the public fund such an endeavor? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to talk about these important issues. Um, the question you're asking is an important one. Why should we study the brain? 
I feel like there are many different reasons why we should study the brain. At least there are two solid arguments that I can make right away. Um, the first argument would be an economic argument. Right now, uh, our ignorance towards mental diseases, our ignorance meaning our inability to, ha to cure mental diseases, is costing the world population $2.5 trillion per year. That's a lot of money. And this is money that we have to spend because there are no treatments. And so we need to support patients. Um, we need to support families who are supporting patients. And that's costing, that's costing a lot of money. If you think about certain diseases in particular, for example, depression, depression alone costs about $260 billion per year in the US. In the U.S. only? In the U.S. alone, yes. Mm -hmm. um, that's very expensive. If you think about it, if there was a little pill that you could give to a depressed patient such that he is cured, and what I mean by cured, I mean like when you have um, you know, a viral infection, uh, bacterial infection, and you take an antibiotic, and then you're cured. It doesn't come back. If we had a cure like this for depression, then we would inject $260 billion back into the economy of the country. That's money that could be spent on education, for example. Um, so this is an economic argument that's important to understand. It might seem like a lot of money for the Obama administration to commit um, to brain research, $5 billion over 10 years. But when you think about the potential return on investment, just for depression, we're talking about $260 billion that could go back into the economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you invested $5 billion and you get 260 back, that's a pretty good deal, right? So that's one argument, the economic argument. But of course, there, there's another more humane argument um, that can be made about the quality of life of these patients. There are many patients who suffer from mental illnesses and the numbers are not often well understood, mostly because it's hard to recognize just by looking at someone whether that person is mentally ill or not, except in certain extreme cases, for example, of schizophrenia. But in most cases, it's hard to, to notice someone who's mentally ill as opposed to someone, for example, on a wheelchair or someone without hair that just underwent uh, radiotherapy for cancer. So um, we often underestimate the amount of people around us who suffer from mental illnesses. To give you some numbers, um, the prevalence, the lifetime prevalence, meaning the probability that you will have that disease over the course of your lifetime, the lifetime prevalence of depression is um, higher than 25%. The prevalence of autism or autistic spectrum disorders is one in every 66 children in America. That's a lot of people who suffer from diseases that often are very disabilitating. Um, diseases that prevent you to go to school or to have a job. This is another argument to be made about why it's important to study the brain. I feel like the only way that we'll be able to find cures, real cures, for brain diseases is if we first understand how the brain works.
Although the field of neuroscience is relatively young compared to other fields such as mathematics or physics, um, we've been studying the brain for a little over a century. So scientists have developed cutting-edge technologies which allow us to record brain signal to the millisecond resolution or manipulate the activity of neurons at the speed of light. So these are very impressive technologies that we've been able to develop, or scientists have been able to develop to study the, the complexity of the brain. However, as you just mentioned before, and as I also once heard from a psychiatrist, today in 2018, there is not a single cure for a single mental disorder. Um, so why do you think this is the case? Do you think that neuroscientists are doing something wrong? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I don't think per se that neuroscientists are doing something wrong in the sense that the field is hitting a wall. Um, I feel like there's a lot of progress being made and a lot of people are devoting their life to truly trying to understand what's going on in the brain. But it just, it just turns out to be a very, very hard challenge. It's much harder, for example, than going to the moon. Um, one of the reasons why is that the brain is such a complex object. In fact, it's the most complicated object that we know of in the observable universe. I'll give you a simple example. Um, your brain is composed of more neuronal connections than there are stars in the galaxy. And that's just your brain. And every brain is different. So it makes it very hard to understand an object that is so complicated. But some people are trying, for example, to map these connections in various laboratory animals. For example, some people are dedicated to understand the worm called C. elegans, small worm, very, very simple system, couple couple neurons, and um, they, these researchers have actually managed to map every neuron and every neuronal connection in that animal. And where did that lead them? Um, well, it certainly did not lead them to a full understanding of how this neuronal network and this neuronal activity generates the behavior of even a simple organism, such as the worm. It turns out that there's a lot more than just the connectivity map to an animal. For example, this map, turns out, is a dynamic map. It's a map that's changing. It's a map that uh, is changing as the individual, the animal, is experiencing life. Um, for example, as you're right now listening to what I'm saying, connections in your brain, if you're understanding what I'm saying, mm -hmm. um, should be changing. Is that what you would call brain plasticity? I guess so, yes. So these connections are changing over the course of a single conversation. Um, they're changing over years, over your lifetime. So having a single static map of your brain is not the only information that you would need to understand how your brain works. You would need also to find a way to see how this map changes as the animal or you and I go throughout different experiences in life. So this makes it an even more complicated problem. We're not trying to understand a static system here. We're trying to understand a, a very dynamic system. And so that really adds to the problem. A second thing that makes it so complicated to understand 
is the fact that the brain is difficult to observe directly. If I were to study the eye, for example, I could, I could look at your eye right away with my eye or with some tools um, to look, for example, at your, at your retina. That would be very useful to understand what are the different parts of the eye and how they work together to give you at least a basic form of vision. Um, but you cannot look at the brain the same way that I can look at your eye right now. Mm -hmm. um, the brain is isolated in this cranial cavity and um, to have a look at it, you have to, well, poke a hole in the skull, right? Like right. neurosurgeons do all the time. That's if you want to have a direct look at it. But of course, there are some non-invasive means by which you can look at the brain. For example, uh, scanners um, like magnetic resonance imaging scanners um, give you a coarse view of uh, the brain. Uh, a coarse view in the sense that it doesn't give you that type of resolution that you would need to really understand how the system works. Why is that? Well, because you have, with most scanners, MRI scanners, you have a what's called a spatial resolution, which is really the, um, the, the, the amount of details that you get about the structure you're looking at. The spatial resolution is only sub-millimeters. I would say, you know, most element, resolution elements in MRI are around half a millimeters today. And it turns out that in a little cubic half millimeter, there are hundreds of thousands of neurons that are talking to each other, um, having a very complicated conversation that we still don't understand. So it would be like trying to understand a group of people in a room speaking Mandarin, although you speak only English, by putting a mic outside of the room, yeah. basically. Sure. So you can only get a very a very indirect idea. view. Yeah, indirect that's view. correct. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So that really complicates the problem. Yes, absolutely. So if I understand correctly what you're saying, not only is our brain extremely complex because uh, just of the sheer number of neurons that we have. I think the human brain has about 86 billion neurons. Each neuron has a, having about a thousand connections, so that's a lot of connections. And even if you do have what we call the full connectome, which is what we have with C. elegans, which has um, this little worm which has about 300 neurons, still we don't understand how it works because it's a dynamic system. And on top of all of that complexity, it's extremely hard to actually observe and study in itself, technically. That's correct, make yeah. It's really complicated. Mm -hmm. You have a hard task at hand <laughs> as a neuroscientist.
So I'd like actually to get more personal here. Um, and I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what got you into neuroscience in the first place? What's your story? Hmm. Well, um, that's a good question. I'm not sure I've got a, a story per se, but <laughs> I, I can tell you about some of the decisions that I've made in my life that got me where I am right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I started being interested in science overall, I would say, when I was quite young, I would say maybe when I was 11, 12 years old. I remember um, reading a book about Einstein and, oh, really? and um, thinking that, wow, this is a clever man tackling some very important question about what is our place in the universe and what is that universe composed of and what are the fundamental rules that um, dictate reality as we know it and a little bit later um, I would say man, when I ended high school I thought that psychology was probably a very um, useful way to understand this reality I think I was illuminated a bit by it a movie I saw <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. when I was younger. It was The Matrix. The Matrix. Yes, The Matrix. I think it was in, it came out in 99 or 2000. But it, there's a specific passage of that movie that really, um, that really fascinated me. And is that part when Morpheus, <laughs> um, who's living in the true reality, tells Neo, who's living in an alternate reality, actually The Matrix, tells him that actually what you call reality is nothing more than the electrical activity of a couple of cells in your brain. I think that what he says is if reality is what you can see, what you can hear, what you can touch, what you can feel, really it's only the electrical activity <laughs> that's going on between your ears that's generating this reality. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, maybe to understand reality, maybe I wouldn't adopt Einstein's way of trying to understand the fundamental rules that are independent of human observers, but I should maybe try to understand the human observer mm -hmm. himself and how the brain generates this reality. And so I thought, let's study psychology. So I joined a psychology program at the University of Montreal and started to um, work in research in a lab that was interested in sports concussions, as you said, as mm -hmm. you said a little bit earlier. But where did I get where I am right now? Well, I first started in clinical research, and at some point, I thought that although this research is very well justified and a very honest attempt to provide help to patients who 
suffer from traumatic brain injury, I started to realize the limitations of the, re the research that I was doing. And that's hard to do, honestly, because you're, you're so absorbed into what you do that it's hard to um, question yourself and to have this kind of introspection about, hey, am I really doing the best thing right now that I could be doing with my life to find the answer to that question? And thought that, yeah, it would be very hard to find a breakthrough in traumatic brain injury research and maybe even in any sort of clinical research if we did not first had a better understanding of how the brain works. Um, as you said a little bit earlier, it's hard to repair any device, um, whether it's a computer or phone or your dryer. It's hard to repair it if you don't first understand just how, how it works. understand correctly in your research you confirmed that sports concussion which happened early in adulthood had consequences years later in retired athletes cognitive abilities and also using these neuroimaging techniques you managed to discover a combination of biomarkers um, which are sort of biological uh, clues which allow to, uh, to have a sort of an objective diagnosis of traumatic brain injury is this a good summary of the, the research you conducted then? Yeah, sure. I might, yeah, I might add that what we tried to do really was to characterize um, the alterations in the brain health of people who uh, sustain traumatic brain injuries. And we used many different techniques to try to understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. There are many different tools, non-invasive tools today that we can use in neuroscience research to understand to understand the brain, MRI is one of them. Um, but there's also EEG, there's also a functional MRI. EEG is a electroencephalography yes. to, to measure the... Um, electrical potentials, the at electrical the, potential. at, yes, on the surface of the scalp. Mm -hmm. So we, we used a lot of these techniques. In humans. Then. In humans to try to understand what was weird about the brain of concussed athletes. And we did, we did find a lot of things, and it was very interesting research. I'm still doing that research today. I still mm -hmm. think it's a valuable research. I think that it will be useful, for example, to establish a objective diagnostic criteria for sports concussion. I think that's essential. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to define and to diagnose the disease if you ever want to develop a treatment for it. Right. So why then did you think that this type of research was, was not enough? Yeah, so I don't think it was enough because I felt like the disease was a lot more complicated than what we were describing with our coarse imaging techniques. First, traumatic brain injury is a very diffuse injury. It's not like there's a little part in your brain that's going wrong. Um, seems like most of your brain is going wrong after you sustain a TBI. Mm. And there's a lot of variability in symptoms. You have some people who have 
emotional problems, other who have difficulty sleeping, other who are sensitive to light, to sound. Tons of variability that tells you that actually this is not a disease of a single brain area and that you won't be able to find a cure by just stimulating one brain area with transcranial magnetic stimulation, for example. High-tech brain stimulation technique that some people are trying to use right now to cure depression. I don't, I don't think that this is gonna make it for traumatic brain injury. I thought that we needed to get a much better understanding of what are the normal processes by which the brain accomplishes its day-to-day -day job. And one thing that I feel limits this type of research and patient research in, in general is that it's hard to establish causal proofs in favor of one hypothesis. And what I mean by this, I mean um, causal as opposed to correlational or observational as is used in the medical field. You can, for example, see a correlation between two variables. Um, let's say that you observe a correlation between the number of janitors in a business and the value of that business, how much that business is, is worth. And you find that the more janitor there is in the business, uh, the, the more... Um, money the business is making. Yeah, the more money the business is making. And so if you really had no intuition about how business is working, and you had to give an advice to a politician about how to make money, you know, one could say, hey, hire more janitors. So of course, because we have an intuition about how business works, we know that this would not be a good advice. We know that actually the number of janitors in a business correlates with the size of the business, but it's an epiphenomenon. It doesn't have any causal power in generating money for a business. And so this is a simple example that tells you this very important lesson that correlation does not imply causation. And although we all hear it during our training at university, I still feel that today a large proportion of scientists are making their, this mistake in their research. They're feeling like they are providing a causal explanation for a phenomena by providing correlational evidence for that phenomena. So this is when you start feeling that your clinical research was not enough because you could only look at correlational evidence. So this is when you decided to switch to more fundamental research in neuroscience, which would allow you to study organisms where you could actually experimentally manipulate variables to be able to understand the, the brain, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. I feel like the only reason why uh, we can say that the janitor business example is silly if, is because we have a prior intuition about how it works, how a business works. Um, but if we don't have this a priori intuition about how the brain works, any sort of correlation can be taken as the ground truth. Mm -hmm. And that is leading us into a wrong path for discovery.
Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what kind of research you were doing during your, your PhD. What did you decide to study once you moved to a PhD in fundamental research? Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to get out of my PhD was a better understanding of the biological basis of mental activity, of thought, of cognition. And I joined a lab um, at McGill University, the laboratory of Julio Martinez Trujillo in the Faculty of Medicine, who was interested about attentional processes. How is it that the brain, who's receiving a terabyte of data through his senses every second, it might be a, it might be a gigabyte, <laughs> but it's a lot of data. A lot of data. A lot of data. Every second, your senses are capturing a lot more data than the brain can actually process. Your brain can, cannot process all that data. So there needs to be some sort of a selection, a filter, some sort of a selection criteria that says, this is important information that I need to deal with right now. And this is just background music that I can ignore. So to orient behavior in a ecologically valid way, meaning in a way that actually makes sense um, when you interact with people around you, when you... Wait, I would like to pause on that concept, ecological validity. Mm -hmm. um, could you explain that to us? What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, that's, um, that's an important concept that comes out of psychology and that I don't hear that much um, talking about in neuroscience. And I feel like this is a little bit unfortunate. Ecological validity is the degree to which the conclusions of a laboratory experiment can be applied to a naturalistic context, like to a real-life context. And it's very important to understand that most of the research we're doing is in the laboratory, and that's in very artificial, highly controlled conditions where we try to isolate the influences of various variables to figure out which is the important variable that is responsible for the phenomenon that we're trying to, to understand. And so it is required in laboratory settings that we kind of prune out or simplify the environment in which the phenomenon that we're trying to understand is occurring. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is that there is a very high risk that by pruning some of these variables that we prune out some that are actually meaningful and that in real life actually determine some part of that phenomenon. Let me give you a simple real life example. So I remember a research group who tried to understand addiction. They were trying to understand actually um, gambling, pathological gambling behavior. And they were inviting people who were supposed to have some gambling uh, problems to come to the laboratory and to play in a fake casino that the experimenters had set up for the purpose of the experiment. And that casino was very realistic. I think, you know, it had, you know, roulette and blackjack and dealers and um, the type of lighting that you would have in a casino. I think even the smell they tried to reproduce. And they would give a certain amount of money to um, the patient or to the participant to play with. And then he would go on, uh, do his thing in the casino, and uh, experimenters were expecting him to exhibit some pathological gambling behaviors that they could study in the laboratory. And turned out that this experiment was a failure. Turned out that when you 
um, study these participants in the laboratory, they don't exhibit any pathological gambling behaviors. And a little bit later, the experimenters figured out that it was one variable in particular that they did not reproduce from the real life um, that was crucial in eliciting this behavior. And in that case, it was that the participant plays with his own money. At the beginning of the experiment, they would give some money to the participant. So the participant would be playing with some money from the lab. Turns out that this is a crucial variable for pathological gambling. The experimenters didn't know. And so whatever conclusion from their experiment were not ecologically valid in the right. sense that they would not apply to real life situations. So ecological validity is an important concept outside of psychology too. Um, for example, in neuroscience research, mm -hmm. um, we have to take into account that the brain evolved to produce certain types of behaviors and that if we make our animals do certain tasks that are completely artificial to that animal, that have no relation to the type of normal behaviors that this animal has in its natural environment, then are we really understanding the brain in its, its natural form? Or are we studying a brain that has been modified in a sense by the laboratory conditions for the purpose of studying it. Right, or maybe perhaps we're studying the brain in a state that you would never find in nature. Exactly. Kind of outside of the realm of possibilities of how animals behave and the, and the brain responds in the normal habitat. Exactly, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make, yes. So before talking about ecological validity, I was talking about... You were talking about your work in, yeah, during my, your my PhD. Yeah, that's it. You were talking about uh, how in nature, the brain receives an impressive amount of mm -hmm. information at any given second, yet it doesn't process all that information. It has developed a, a way to actually prune out and select relevant information given a certain context. Yeah, um, that's correct. Yes, so this PhD work was done in a laboratory context um, with laboratory animals to try to understand how the neural activity of certain neuronal population in the front of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, how did those neurons do that filtering process? And I recorded from hundreds of neurons simultaneously and tried to extract certain types of information that were present in the communication of these neurons among themselves. And this is something that we do with machine learning algorithms to try to decode that information. And we can, we can use these decoding algorithms to ask very specific questions. For example, I could ask that decoder um, whether this neural population right now is thinking about a banana or an apple. It's representing the information exactly. of a banana or an apple. Yeah, exactly. that's it, that's <laughs> it. So if right now this neural population activity is representing an apple, it should have a specific signature. It should be in a specific state. Mm -hmm. Maybe one neuron is talking louder than the other. Mm -hmm. 
Whereas if that neuron population is thinking about a banana, then it's a different type of neuron that are being active. And so there should be certain signatures to different representations. And we can extract those signatures using multi-electrode arrays and that allow to record from several neurons in combination with machine learning techniques. So this is something that I, I worked on during, uh, during my PhD and we turned out to, to learn a lot about how this filtering process was happening on a, on a realistic time frame, on a millisecond time frame, just like your brain is actually doing it in mm -hmm. real life uh, when you're at a party you're listening to a conversation. Okay. touching towards the end uh, of the interview, unfortunately. But I, I'd like to make a point here, and as I'm sure you would agree, science is not so much about facts or what we already know, in the sense that the, the daily lives of scientists is actually more about the attempts to answer questions and the failures that they, that they go through, rather than the successful discoveries. Would, would you agree with that? Well, if science, uh, I, I wouldn't agree with the statement saying that science is not about fact. I feel like science is all right. about facts. Yes. Um, okay. it's, it's trying to, to establish new facts. I agree that um, we spend most of our time in areas where there are no facts yet and we're trying mm -hmm. to establish them, if that's what you were trying to say. That's then what then I was I trying to yes, say. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. So that's exactly what I was trying to say. I was trying to, to point at the, the fact that these daily struggles um, that scientists go through are rarely talked about among scientists and they never make the news for the general public to hear. So I thought that it would be important to show that even a successful scientist such as yourself goes through failures as well. So um, would you be willing to share a failure story that you experienced? Yeah. Um, yes, I can think of one and I can think of uh, many failures that I saw around me also affecting other of my colleagues and it's true that we don't often talk about that that's not what's being presented at conferences that's what not what's being writ written about in journals but it is a fundamental part of activity of scientific research so if I had to think about one story yeah I, I think I can go back to my PhD where we tried to test uh, a, an idea that was it was a little bit uh, ambitious. It was a, maybe a high-risk project, uh, but you need to have some of these. Where we tried to see whether Ritalin, which is a, a drug to treat attention deficit disorder, the question was whether Ritalin would alter the activity 
of that same neuronal population that was doing attentional filtering in the prefrontal cortex that we identified in the previous study mm. in my PhD. So the question was whether Ritalin, the drug, was actually exerting its attentional effects through that same neuronal population mm -hmm. in the prefrontal cortex. And we thought this was very likely because we were identifying a very important node in the attentional network of the brain. And we were thinking, well, if this drug modifies attentional behavior, it must do something to that neural population. And so turned out that it wasn't the case. <laughs> turned out that gave the drug to the animals and that it did absolutely nothing to the activity of these neuronal populations. Hmm. And I looked and I looked and I couldn't believe it. I thought it must do something and it didn't. And at some point I just had to accept that, well, maybe we are not understanding correctly how the attentional network works. Or maybe even worse, maybe the research that I'm doing is only correlational research. And this neurophysiology signature that I was identifying in this prefrontal cortex activity that I thought was underlying, causally underlying attentional filtering is not causally underlying attentional filtering. It's like that gender in, you know, in, that, in, your example. in my example with the business. Here what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to inject money in a business and then looking at how many janitors are being generated in that business. And I see, that, oh, there, there's none. So maybe I was looking at an epiphenomenon. Maybe I was trying to see the effect of a drug in a neuronal population that doesn't play a causal role. Or maybe it plays a causal role, but in, in a way that I still don't understand. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's a failure per se, because I'm still learning something Right. through this experiment. And I think that's something that's important. Um, it's as important to identify new theories as it is to prune out wrong theories, you know, mm -hmm. to... Um, so negative results Negative are results are important, if they are solid, of course. You mm -hmm. need to make sure you have the statistical power, you have the well-designed experiments um, that support these negative results. I think that that was the case. So is that a failure story? Well, in terms of publication, yes. I've been struggling for maybe four years now four years. to publish that paper because wow. it has negative results in it. I still think it's an important study and I will still try to publish it, but it will never be published in a big journal that a lot of people will read, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Although I believe it's, it's important research. So. Yeah, I feel like the lesson here is um, mistakes are part of the job. <laughs> I'm not sure mistakes per se, but at least failures are part of the job. But um, don't let yourself be discouraged uh, mm -hmm. by these. They're part of the process and they're actually an important part of the process. Okay, well, thank you very much, Dr. Tremblay. I think we've touched upon your philosophy of science and a little bit more about the heart of your science. We're a graduate student-led organization and probably many graduate students will be listening to this podcast. So do you have any advice for them that you would like to share? Yeah, I feel like if there's one thing that I need to put emphasis on, but that most people have probably 
heard before, is that you need to like what you do. The only way that you can be good at what you do is if you are passionate about what you do. Mm. You are never going to be as good as someone else who's passionate if you're not. Because at some point in our careers, we're all intelligent people. Um, what really differentiates one from another is someone who is hardworking and passionate about what he does, such that when he talks about it, you want to listen. When he mm -hmm. works at it, he does good work because he cares. And he doesn't care about the pay or the money. He cares about it personally. And this is what guarantees quality in the work. And so don't fall for any field that's sexy or field that seem to have a dollar signed at the end of it. Follow really what you, your heart is telling you that you feel is important. And if you haven't found that thing yet, which is very possible, I don't think I have personally found that thing until only recently. It's a process to discover what you like and what you don't like. And the only way to walk through that process is to explore different avenues and then to identify the ones that you're very passionate about. And so follow that passion wherever it might lead you. That would be my advice. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure.